Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday and we're not far from wrapping up the final full week of August. Where has the time gone? But one thing for sure is that the older we get in life, time moves by rather quickly. But it's up to us as individuals for how we choose to go about using our time on a daily basis. And time itself can mean, you know, just about anything, but how we use our time is truly a reflection of how we go about uh, getting things getting things done on a daily basis and how we go about making the most of our lives, given that none of us should ever take uh, life for granted. You know, I've uh, really enjoyed... Um, continuing to see uh, results come in. And the only reason I say this is because um, I'm glad to know that um, I've been able to connect with uh, various other nations around the world that I didn't um, expect to connect with. Uh, I don't know why I say it, but it is nice to know that um, that other nations out in the world uh, who have been able to listen to my podcasts have been able to do so. I think it's fair to say that there are some nations throughout this world where um, learning is restricted for numerous reasons, and uh, sometimes that's not always a good thing. So I am glad to know that I've been able to um, make it into uh, certain parts of the world that I didn't expect to be in, uh, which is definitely a sign of perhaps those countries being a little bit more um, open-minded to allow um their peoples uh, to be able to learn um, essential um, history. So um, here we are um, in discussing um, Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign by Robert M. Dunkerley and Irene Boland. I believe many of you all probably um, were in for a real surprise um, after um, having listened to the um, prologue of this uh, book topic series. I know that the vast majority of you, probably over 90%, probably were still convinced that Yorktown was the final battle that ended not, not so much the American Revolution. Of course, we do know that the um, battle at Yorktown did not end the Revolutionary War altogether, but it is fair to say that many of you all probably were convinced for for quite some time that Yorktown was the final battle of the American Revolutionary War Southern Campaign, but got the shock of a lifetime that it turns out that, that, that Yorktown was not the final battle, and that rather it was a forgotten battle known as Utah Springs. So in this uh, next podcast segment we're going to be uh, discussing, we're going to learn... Um, some uh, fundamental uh, 101 um, essentials with regards to um, what comprises a regiment, what comprises a, a brigade. We also need to learn uh, some stuff about cavalry because we have because we have to be remembered in 18th century time. And of course it, it does extend obviously into the 19th century, but we have to keep in mind that armies, are not just confined to those whom carry muskets and rifles and march from point A to point B. While that is important, we should be reminded that armies 
are more than just soldiers marching. Armies have uh, more to um, present than just um, individuals wearing their uniforms and marching in a straight line. I think it's fair to say that uh, we'll be in for some uh, unique uh, findings as to what comprises a regiment, how many um, units make up a brigade. I just think all of that's important because, you know, it's one thing to have an army, but you also have to know the, the core uh, components of your army. And we're also going to learn about, um, we're going to learn obviously more about Nathaniel Green, given that he is the uh, commander of the Southern Continental Army, but we're going to learn about other um, officers whom are who make up the um, the Southern Continental Army. There are many officers, but at the same time, I also realize that in order to um, to do this podcast segment effectively, that yes, focus on the officers that you know are worth uh, sharing about, but at the same time, also provide as um, thorough of a description as you can about the Greater uh, Southern Continental Army. After all, we might be in for a bit of a surprise to find that um, just because it's a southern continental army, it might not necessarily mean that it's just confined to soldiers from the Carolinas, from Georgia, and, say, Virginia. We might be uh, surprised to find out that uh, soldiers come from other parts of uh, the 13 colonies, or colonial America, rather, I should say, even though we have uh, officially declared our independence from England. We haven't been able to be called the United States by the rest of the world just yet in 1781. So I think it's time to uh, get the show on the road. Uh, So let's go ahead and uh, fasten our seatbelts and we are going to um, get ready to uh, learn some more exciting um, history behind Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution's Southern Campaign. Our leadoff question for this uh, podcast segment is the following. Were many well-known Continental Army commanders of the Revolutionary War Southern Campaign present at Utah Springs, South Carolina? The answer is yes. Besides General Nathaniel Green, you had commanders from Robert Kirkwood, Otho Williams, Andrew Pickens, John Howard, William Washington, Henry Lee, Francis Marion to Wade Hampton. I mean, they're just some of the many uh, well-known Continental Army commanders uh, of the Revolutionary War Southern Campaign that have uh, now made their way into uh, Utah Springs. I'm sure most of you probably, for example, have uh, learned about Francis Marion as well as uh, Andrew Pickens and perhaps William Washington. And for those of you who were uh, with me uh, when we discussed John Aller's The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution, uh, it should be worth pointing out that um, Francis Marion, um, his presence uh, will be known at Utah Springs, uh, not just because of who, he, of who he is, but just the fact that he um, will play an essential role in this um, battle that had been forgotten for so long up until uh, recent years. So yes, it's good to know that there are uh, many well-known Continental Army commanders of this uh, Southern Campaign uh, present at uh, Utah Springs. And I think what's important to know is that um, 
a handful of these uh, commanders are very, very familiar with the terrain of the, um, of the South, given that um, many of them have lived in the Carolinas for quite some time. And so, therefore, they know a lot, a lot of the uh, what we might refer to as back roads. They know of um, routes along the uh, dirt roads that um, can get them much faster from point A to point B. They know um, how to scout the terrain to where they might perhaps be able to um, launch plans and have um, army detachments go and um, scout out the opposition ahead of time. Of course, the opposition being uh, the British. How about this one, folks? Partisans, a.k.a. individual peoples, along with militia groups, were often found in General Greene's uh, regular, a.k.a. Continental Army. Of course, when I think of the militia, I always think of um, them as being a private um, entity. In other words, they're not directly linked with the Continental Army, but they are like a, a subsidy. In other words, they are, a, um, they are their own group. And of course, George Washington didn't always speak very fondly of the militia. He always uh, frowned upon them, given that militiamen came and they often came and went as they pleased. In other words, they it was always about them. Well, you know, I'll fight for a couple of months, but then after my period of enlistment's up, I'm just going to go back home and, and tend to my duties, uh, you know, that is, you know, with the farm and with my family and while all that's important. For Washington, he saw that the militiamen just were lacking a sense of long-term commitment. But perhaps it might be fair to say that by the time Nathaniel Green comes along as the new uh, commander of the Southern Continental Army, that the militia's attitude changes, not just because there's a new commander in town, but the new commander has will go about instituting new ways of fighting that will give the militia a better sense of commitment, not just short-term, but perhaps long-term. So... Believe it or not, partisans, or I should say individual peoples, along with the militia groups, were often found in General Greene's um, Continental Army, most notably from late 1780 when Greene first arrived and throughout most of the Carolinas' campaign. Normally, militia and partisans operated independently from regular Continentals. And that wasn't always a bad case, but given the circumstances that have um, come about, from the time Nathaniel Green arrives and throughout most of 1781, the militia, if the militia want to be valued, then they need to be a part of the uh, Continental Army, but they also need to know how to go about, um, you know, doing things differently. And even though, yes, there are those who, who may not respect the militia from within, like Washington, uh, General Washington, it is fair to say that if new strategies come about, which they did, and the militiamen were able to perform their duties in a uh, professional uh, style, then perhaps the militia will be respected. But it, it could be fair to say that it would be up to uh, their um, leaders in command, as well as to uh, those from the uh, Continental Army ranks, especially from the Southern um, Continental Army, that um, based upon um, their relations with um, officers of the militia, 
if they all know how to work together, then they can obviously get a lot achieved. Now, uh, lead up to Utah Springs, uh, rather I should say the lead up to Utah Springs gave American commanders an advantage. How so? Is it fair to say that, that American commanders, the majority of American commanders, had led regiments and brigades into battlefield combat? Do you believe that many of the American commanders from the Southern Campaign had numerous experience in leading regiments and brigades into battlefield combat? Uh, the answer is yes. Is it all confined to just the Southern Campaign? No. It could be that perhaps some of the officers whom are now fighting in the South have served in other uh, in other uh, battles where they um, where they held the same rank or a different rank, but they um, knew what it was like to um, lead regiments and brigades into battle, regardless of whether it was a victory or defeat. The bottom line is, the majority of these American commanders have an advantage given that, that many of them have led regiments and brigades into actual combat. As for the British commanders, they did have, many of them did have a certain degree of experience in overseeing regiments and brigades. However, by 1781, the British commanders whom have um, stayed in the South, because uh, we have to remember um, after the um, Battle of Guilford Courthouse from uh, March of 1781, General Lord Charles Cornwallis and his um, and his forces they've they have experienced all kinds of setbacks. They may have won at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, but it came at a um, it came at a very bad expense, as one member of Parliament said. Another pirate victory like this one will decimate us. You know, to the point where we may not be able to live to see another day of fighting in the South. In other words, Cornwallis lost more men than Nathaniel Green's army did, but whereas Nathaniel Green and his forces came away, they came away um, unscathed. I mean, they, they lost men, but they still had their army to show for, and their army was able to live on uh, for another day of fighting, whereas Cornwallis was Cornwallis's forces were forced to retreat to the coast of North Carolina, being Wilmington, where they pretty much had to resupply before going up north to uh, Virginia for the Virginia campaign. So, you know, given how long the British have been in the South, they just haven't been able to get the home run to end the campaign once and for all. So their commanders, yes, they have experience in overseeing regiments and brigades, uh, leading those regiments and brigades into uh, battlefield combat. But by 1781, it would be fair to say that for the British commanders still in the Carolinas, their levels of expertise have drastically fluctuated. And why would you say that they're, why would we want to say that for the British commanders that their levels of expertise in overseeing regiments and brigades become drastically fluctuated? I believe it's fair to say that for the British leadership in the South, they have been unable to um, adjust to um, 
they have not been able to make the proper adaptations behind the new style of fighting. So their, um, ex their experiences have become drastically fluctuated due to the inabilities behind adapting towards irregular style warfare, fighting techniques, tactics. So in other words, you know, one good example of something that's done irregular is to, um, let's say, you've got a um, an army that's uh, marching through the woods, and you've sent a team of scouts. You haven't sent the whole army, but you've sent enough of uh, enough scouting personnel to um, to study the movement of this larger army making its way towards the intended destination of target. Now, what the scouts can do is they can um, they can assess just how much they can assess how many troops are making their way through, but they can also they can also surprise you. In other words, they could um, out of nowhere start firing. They could disrupt the larger enemy's lines to where they have to make a run for it, to where they have to. Um, they have to run for cover, but they don't really know where to go run exactly for cover. So for those um, soldiers on the American side who know how to go about conducting this irregular style fighting, the goal isn't to um, hit a home run, it, I mean, or I should say a grand slam, but the goal is to cause enough disruption to where, okay, by harassing the greater um army being that of the British, if we, you know, knock them down, you know, wound five or seven of their soldiers, but say we only end up killing three of them out of, say, um, a team of, you know, 30 soldiers that are marching, by wounding five of them, I mean, we, we've pretty much um, eliminated about close to 20% of their uh, force. So the bottom line is that, you know, we're not all about hitting grand slams every day, but over time, the goal is to find ways to gradually wear down the enemy, not just the enemy, but the greater um, army itself. Because after all, it's fair to say that the British are seen as the elephant, whereas the Americans can be best seen as the mosquitoes based upon their irregular style tactics. You know, an elephant can only go one straight direction. Sure, an elephant can turn but it can't turn very quickly. Um, you know, the herd has to have some form of uh, greater protection, but where? But as for mosquitoes, they can come in any direction, any moment's notice, and they and the mosquitoes can throw curveballs by doing things irregular. That is, harassing your enemy out of nowhere, firing shots out of nowhere to where the soldiers get out of line, perhaps panic, start running for their lives, only to be uh, taken down, wounded, to where they can no longer uh, see um, future um, combat. So there you have it right there, folks, that uh, the British commanders, they're, um, yes, they had the experience in overseeing the regiments and brigades, but, but by 1781, their levels of expertise is fluctuating drastically, simply in part because they don't have the proper abilities to adapt to the uh, new style of fighting being irregular style warfare. All right, here's another question. Uh, what was the most basic standard fighting unit during the time 
of the Revolutionary War? Uh, what was the most basic standard? The most basic standard fighting unit during the time of the Revolutionary War was a regiment. So what is a regiment? A regiment is a permanent unit of an army which was led by a colonel. However, regiments could get broken down into multiple companies. So a regiment doesn't always have to be one company, folks. Regiments could be four. In some instances, maybe they could be six companies. If a regiment neared full strength, its numbers would have gotten around to what number, folks? I'll give you a hint. The number is between 400 and 600. The answer is 600. So if a regiment neared full strength, its numbers would have gotten around 600 men. However, this was rarely... Um, However, this rarely happened during the conflict, or I should say the Greater War. In other words, very seldomly did it ever get to around 600. So regiments consisted of 10 companies per 60 men in each one, 60 times 10 being 600. Four regiments made a brigade. And what is a brigade? It's a subdivision of an army that was led by a brigadier general, a colonel, or a lieutenant colonel. See, it's good to diversify your army. In other words, you know, yes, you can have a, a chief commander, but you need to have commanders below the chief commander whom know how to, um, whom know how to uh, possess the skills of uh, managing um, units, not just for drill preparation purposes, but for actual combat. Remember, folks, you know, think of an army as, a, as an entity. It, it's like a business. Everybody has a task from the commanding officer to the officers below the commanding officer and to the soldiers. They all have to be on the same page. If, if, if nobody's on the same page in an army, then how can an army function? It's just not possible. The American army going into Utah Springs was made up of three brigades of Continental troops, including multiple militia units and cavalry regiments often referred to as dragoons. I'm sure some of you have probably heard of the term dragoon. Dragoons, um, for those of you who don't know, are uh, mounted soldiers whom had dual threat roles. How so? Well, dragoons, uh, given they are mounted soldiers, for one, they um, can fight by horseback during attack mode. So in other words, you know, if you're, if you're a cavalryman and you're riding by horse and, and you, all of a sudden you're in the midst of an attack, you can use um, your sword or, you know, you can have a pistol. Pistols are lighter weight um, guns and it would be easier for a cavalryman to uh, load his pistol and fire at his um, opposition that could be coming near him to attack not, not only him but perhaps his horse. And then, of course, for the dragoons, um, they also have the means of getting off their horses and being able to engage in hand-to-hand -hand com combat where they, um, where they uh, will be able to, um, to uh, move quickly from point A to point B and uh, chasing down their intended targets. What exactly does light infantry mean? Now, I'm sure many of you have heard of this, uh, but, uh, but it is important to, uh, to discuss. Uh, for starters, light infantry refers to soldiers moving by foot, okay? But doing so with less equipment on hand. 
you know, usually when we think of soldiers um, moving from point A to point B, we tend to think of them as carrying those heavy, um, we might think of them as backpacks, but we know that that's not the proper term. But we often have gotten this assumption that soldiers carried everything left and right to where, in some instances, if their posture wasn't right, you know, their backs could have given out on them. But ironically, uh, there are many of soldiers uh, during the uh, American Revolutionary War that fall under the light infantry category. And light infantry is essential because it's one thing to be able to move by foot, but doing so with less equipment might mean it could make all the difference in terms of um, not only getting to your um, intended uh, target uh, spot in the right time, but also it, it can make all the difference in being able to uh, do what is called scouting. It might make all the difference in being able to um, observe the enemy from a distance. So by having less equipment on you, you might be able to, uh, you, can, you can do a lot of things for, for the better. So for soldiers of light infantry status, they had better means behind moving faster than their counterparts whom transported greater levels of equipment. So for those whom are transporting wagons, you know, with essential supplies, they're not going to be able to move very quickly, uh, considering that, you know, if they've got horses pulling the wagons, um, you know, the horses can only go but so fast. And then, of course, if you're transporting these wagons and the roads are um, muddy, they're... Um, covered if they're wet I mean in some instances you might not even be able to travel but for light infantry men they can still move from point A to point B um, pretty uh, efficiently even in the um, most inclement of weather in order to be able to um, in order to be able to go about uh, performing the missions uh, before them Light infantry was prevalent, uh, as I said earlier, throughout the Revolutionary War's duration on both sides. So it wasn't. So in other words, one side of the conflict. Um, in other words, there was no um, we call it favoritism in this. In other words, the British were the British were just as good with using light infantry as American uh, troops were. Now, uh, I should point out that um, soldiers in this particular category performed various duties, most notably when it involved the harassing, delaying, and disrupting enemy, or I should say the opponent's means of transporting supplies prior to the actual battlefield combat. I think the harassing and the delaying parts would have been the most um, effective after all, being able to uh, fire shots out of nowhere in terms of throwing a line off, off task, off guard. In other words, by uh, firing shots where your target might be to knock somebody down, even if you miss, you are still causing disruption. Of course, my, uh, the line that I remember most from the movie The Patriot uh, with Mel Gibson and the late Heath Ledger, Mel Gibson and his uh, two youngest sons are trying to rescue um, the late Heath Ledger because he was taken captive by the uh, British um, troops for being a spy. So Gibson tells his boys, what did I teach you all about uh, shooting? 
aim small, miss small. In other words, by aiming small and missing small, if you don't hit your opponent immediately to where the opponent is knocked out of the fight, if you hit, say, if you get part of his uh, jacket, like, in other words, you hit a couple of his buttons, you, you still knock him down, but you've caused enough disruption to where you, as the individual that fired the shot, uh, can, can still have the time to reload without being, um, without being um, visibly caught by the enemy. So, in other, in other words, you don't want to make yourself completely visible when you fire. You want to hide somewhere, but by aiming small and missing small, you still have another opportunity to get your opponent to the point where you've knocked him down, where he's no longer a part of the fight. So, yes, for these uh, soldiers, I don't know if they uh, went by the aim small, miss small adage from the movie, but the bottom line is that they that their uh, one of their tactics is to do whatever it takes to harass, delay, and in a sense disrupt the enemy's means of getting to and from their um, intended destination. Yeah, they might get there, but if you disrupt them enough, it might cause um, a delay to where by the time a battle comes, that delay could either make or break that opponent's ability to come away with a victory. Infantrymen, uh, or light infantrymen rather, also went about conducting a defensive tactic known as screening, where they used outposts to disguise their purpose and number strength, but most importantly, obtain early warning signs of an impending enemy approach. So yes, um, instituting an outpost to where you can um, disguise your purpose and observe what the enemy is doing nearby it can make all the difference so that you that so that you as the observer can report back to your superior officer and say hey here's what the enemy's numbers look like this is the direction they're going in um given what we're what we've seen this is how we think we should go about uh launching a surprise attack or when the time an actual battle comes this is how we should go about doing um doing stuff versus doing the uh conventional way of uh, traditional uh, linear warfare. Now, uh, prior to October 1780, when General George Washington appointed Major General Nathaniel Green to the new post of the Southern Continental Army commander, had Green himself seen extensive military action? Yes. You, you just don't become a general overnight. But for Nathaniel Green, he had fought in all the large major battles with the main Continental Army under General Washington's command. Most notable battles from the New York Campaign of 1776, Trenton and Princeton, New Jersey from December of 1776 into the start of January 1777, to Brandywine in Germantown, PA from September um, into... I want to say between August and to the start of October 1777 would have been uh, the Brandywine Germantown campaigns. So, you know, Nathaniel Green, he hasn't missed out on anything, but he's seen it all. He's seen the highs. He's seen the lows. The lows, to me, would have been from the New York campaign. The highs would have come from Trenton and Princeton, New Jersey. The highs didn't happen overnight there. But they were um, highs 
in the sense that um, without those highs, the um, Revolutionary War itself, in terms of the um, the greater cause, would have been extinguished had it not been for those uh, two battles there. Brandywine and Germantown were setbacks, but setbacks that um, somehow enabled Washington and his forces to be able to live to, to see another day of fighting. Uh, they were able to, um, although Philadelphia fell into the hands of the uh, British, they, um, they were able to uh, save many um, essentials from uh, the State House um, Assembly Hall in Philadelphia, but it was also one of those periods of time where uh, after the um, debacles at um, Brandywine in Germantown that many would begin to wonder if Washington really was the chosen uh, commander after all. Lots of highs and lows in this war. No slam dunks, to say the least. But come 1780, Nathaniel Greene went about commanding um, subunits of the primary army, or rather I should say the Continental Army, which made up thousands of soldiers. This guy knows what it takes to uh, command an army, folks. He may not be the general like General George Washington, but is it fair to say that Nathaniel Greene um, has learned an extensive amount of information on how to command um, regiments under Washington's leadership? Absolutely. Nathaniel Green also, um, it was during the Valley Forge, win the winter of Valley Forge from uh, December of 1777 into uh, February of 1778, that Nathaniel Green was placed in charge as the Army Commissary. I'm sure many of you are wondering what in the world is an army commissary. Well, I can tell you this right now. As the Continental Army's commissary during the winter of Valley Forge, 1777 to 1778, and past that time, going into 1780, Nathaniel Green oversaw the distribution of all military supplies, military supplies being equipment, to uh, provisions you know, like food provisions like salted pork, salted beef, um, you know, other um, essential uh, provisions like flour, sugar, um, you name it. Just about anything that there could have been uh, to feed an army. You know, we have to remember we don't have grocery stores. We don't have... Um, we don't have massive what we call assembly lines that can produce food in a reasonable time to uh, to ensure that, say, a thousand soldiers get fed on a daily basis. And we have to keep in mind that soldiers aren't eating three meals a day. They're lucky if they can get one meal a day at best. But this is a very daunting task for Nathaniel Green because, you know, it's one thing to request military supplies. It's another thing to request provisions. And while, yes, some requests got met, through means of unanimous consent and, and agreement by, um, by the uh, provisional uh, government. And, um, well, of course, that provisional government's had to relocate many of times, folks. You know, it was in Philadelphia. They've relocated to Annapolis, Maryland. And when the British took over Philadelphia, they were forced to uh, retreat west of Philadelphia to what, we, to what we now know as the Amish country of uh, Lancaster, P.A., so the government is having to move constantly 
because if the government doesn't move, <laughs> then they're just a sitting duck for the British. So for Nathaniel Green, although he did get re some requests met, but as effective as Green himself was at the post, there were still plenty of situations where essential equipment and provisional or and provisions in terms of uh, requests that Green himself asked for, those um, essential equipment and uh, provisions requests were not met. Why not? Well, for one, there was a lack of money available. I can understand that. You know, hey, we have to remember we we are a provisional government. We don't have anywhere we don't have anywhere close to um, what we would think of as a surplus. We are on borrowed time. We are essentially we're struggling. I mean, we could technically say we're in a deficit. We're not spending money so much like there's no tomorrow. The problem is that we just don't have enough money. Think about it, folks. We're, we're pretty much using paper money. Paper money has no value. It may have value today, but it has no value tomorrow. Not everyone has access to uh, silver. And there are those in Congress whom have made fortunes prior to... Um, declaring their separation from England, and while it's been a blessing that those individuals have used their money to help fund the war, even that money alone isn't going to be around forever because we don't know for sure when, how and when this war is going to end. So, yes, if, if Congressman John Smith hypothetically had, had say, 20,000 pounds of money, of course, I don't know what that would come out to or equate to in today's time, but let's just say John Smith had 20,000 pounds of money, and he's investing all that money into the war. That's great. But who's to say that um, in a few years from now, if we're still fighting, will John Smith have any more money left? That's, that's a million-dollar question right there. So, you know, for Nathaniel Green, it's a constant struggle. Yes, he's proposed, he is asking for numerous requests for essential equipment and provisions, but they're not being able to be met due to the lack of money available as well, and to make matters worse, uh, partisan politics, which strained relations between military officers and those serving in the government. Partisan politics, that's nothing new. We see it today. But it was going on even in the time of the American Revolutionary War, folks. Let's keep in mind that while, yes, yes, those in the provisional government, you know, they want independence from England, but yet you're going to find some who aren't really happy with how George Washington's um, running things. You've got some, believe it or not, folks, who, who, who just want Washington out altogether, as the Southern Continental Army commander, Nathaniel Green's uh, leadership skill tactics proved beyond essential, where he used roads, streams, and rivers in transporting troops and supplies out of, en out of the enemy's reach. From late 1780 throughout March of 1781, Nathaniel Green's forces prevailed by leading the British Army away from their base, being that of uh, Charleston, South Carolina, into a terrain where supplies came hard to come by. And it's not so much that the supplies themselves came hard to come by, but how about, how about the greater purpose that by, um, that by leading the British away from their base, 
that over time the, the uh, British forces would be exhausted, worn down, burnt out. And they were burnt out and worn out by several means, but most notably through irregular warfare. In other words, they could never um, replace those whom had been wounded or, or, or killed. You know, for every five men who were wounded and perhaps for every five to ten men who were killed, the British are going to have to go out into um, places that they don't know really a whole lot about and try to recruit those who would be willing to um, change their loyalties from patriot to loyalist just to ensure that that the dead and the wounded are going to have their numbers replaced. So it's not like, um, you know, for example, it's not like General Lord Charles Cornwallis bef uh, before um, the, the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. It's not like he could have just called up to King George III in Parliament and say, hey, look, I'm uh, X number of soldiers short. Uh, do you think you could uh, transport about 3,000 more soldiers across the ocean, being 3,000 miles across the ocean to the Carolinas and have them here uh, within a month's time. It just doesn't work that way. So so the further the British um, get out of their base from Charleston, South Carolina, the harder it, it becomes for them to be able to not only obtain supplies from other places, but it also becomes harder for them to replace those whom have been killed and wounded from various irregular style uh, warfare fighting. Now let's, um, we're going to now start focusing on um, other um, American officers whom make up the greater, um, how, how do I say it, make up the greater team of the American army at Utah Springs. Whom commanded General Green's uh, three continental brigades going into Utah, into the Utah Springs battle? Uh, how about Colonel Otho Holland Williams of Maryland? Uh, Colonel Williams, prior to 1781, participated in other Revolutionary War engagements from Fort Washington, New York in 1776 to fighting at Monmouth Courthouse, New Jersey in June 1778. It was after the Monmouth campaign that Williams went south with the 6th Maryland uh, Regiment, where he already had attained the rank of Colonel, and his first experience of uh, fighting in the Southern uh, Campaign came at came in August of 1780 at Camden, which was an infamous debacle. And of course, this was before Nathaniel Green arrived uh, to south into the South, but uh, the previous commander before him, uh, we will learn about him uh, somewhere down the road here soon. But he was just not a very effective commander in the Southern Campaign. Uh, General Green was responsible for appointing Colonel Williams to take over the command role of Continental Army's rear, or I should say back guard, during the race to the Dan River in early 1781. Colonel uh, Williams replaced Daniel Morgan, and uh, Colonel Williams fought at um, other uh, well-known Southern campaign battles like Guilford Courthouse, Hobkirk, Hobkirk's Hill, to 96. Now, Colonel uh, Williams's brigade made up, uh, consisted of two Maryland and one Delaware regiments. Uh, the one that I found uh, very interesting that I feel is worth sharing about was, uh, well, actually, uh, before I mention that here in a moment, um, there was Lieutenant Colonel John Eager Howard that led the 1st Maryland Regiment 
And then you had Major Henry Hardman that led the 2nd Red Maryland Regiment um, come uh, the time Utah Springs happens. But Robert Kirkwood, or he was known as uh, Captain Robert Kirkwood, he led the Delaware Regiment and served with high honors throughout the Revolutionary War. Uh, Kirkwood himself served with the Delaware Regiment as early on as um, in 1776 during the infamous uh, New York campaign debacle at Long Island. He was also there during the uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania campaigns, so that means he would have seen action at uh, Trenton and Princeton, as well as uh, Brandywine and Germantown. He, too, like Colonel Otho Holland Williams, fought at Camden, uh, South Carolina, August of 1780. Despite the uh, Camden debacle, uh, fortunately for um, Captain uh, Robert Kirk Kirkwood, uh, his forces were able to successfully regroup and fought at other battles like Calpens to Guilford Courthouse. He really was considered to be the best small unit combat leader of the uh, Southern uh, Campaign. Now, whom commanded uh, the North Carolina Brigade at Utah Springs? His name was Brigadier General Jethro Sumner. Prior to the Revolutionary War breaking out, Sumner had served with Virginia militia in the French and Indian War. He was a planter and tavern owner in Halifax County, North Carolina. When the Revolutionary War broke out, Sumner had served in the North Carolina in the North Carolina Provisional Congress in 1775, and prior to the Southern Campaign breaking out, Sumner had fought with the 3rd North Carolina, which fought at Brandywine, Germantown, and uh, was a part of the greater encampment at uh, Valley Forge. So it's interesting enough, folks, now we can say that with the Southern Campaign that we now see officers uh, leading regiments from as far north as Maryland and Delaware. I have to wonder if anybody from Virginia will be making their way um, down south into the Carolinas, uh, most notably Utah Springs. We might know that here shortly. The North Carolina regiments were solid strong due to officer leadership based upon previous engagements where skills got tested in the midst of victory and defeat, including reinventing tactical measures when absolutely necessary. There's no time for, um, for failure. There's, there's no time for throwing in the towel. Because for Nathaniel Green and the officers whom have seen all kinds of stuff in the Carolina campaign, what has been their objective? It's their, the objective has been to keep the British in the Carolinas for as long as possible, because if the British make it out of the Carolinas a lot faster and, and on time, they have an easy slam dunk into Virginia to where, to where they might just be able to end the war. So in other words, the longer this conflict goes on, the harder it becomes for the British to be able to achieve their goals. You know, the British want that slam-dunk victory. They want the 13 colonies to resubmit their allegiances to the crown. But even Parliament can't figure out why it is taking so long for this conflict to come to an end. Even Parliament, folks, is operating in the red. They, they don't have a surplus. I mean, they, they are, um, their treasury is drained. Now, uh, what Virginian? Ah, did you hear that, folks? 
Virginia. So we know so we know that Virginia is involved. Uh, the state of Virginia is going to be in, involved with the battle at Utah Springs. Uh, what Virginian led the Virginia Brigade of Green's Army? How about Lieutenant Colonel Richard Campbell, for whom uh, Campbell County in Virginia is named after? As a matter of fact, Campbell County is located not far from uh, Lynchburg. Um, there is a place there in Campbell County known as Alta Vista. Uh, but uh, Campbell County um, is uh, west of where I live. Uh, you can get to there, to Campbell County, along um, US, uh, from US 360 to 460. So Richard Campbell is actually a native of the Shenandoah Valley, but prior to the Revolutionary War, he served with the militia at Fort Pitt. Where do you think Fort Pitt might be, folks? What we now know is present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He led expeditions against the Indians along the Ohio River Valley. Just before Utah Springs, Campbell became lieutenant colonel, where he commanded a brigade of two regiments prior uh, prior to his lieutenant colonel rank, Campbell had fought with regular Continental Army in the 4th, 8th, 9th, and 13th Virginia regiments. This guy doesn't miss out on anything, to say the least. So for Lieutenant Colonel Richard Campbell, he participated in southern uh, battles like Camden, Guilford Courthouse, 96, Hobkirk's Hill. I know I've mentioned those battles quite a bit, but don't you think we're noticing a theme, folks? consistency with these officers they have seen the ups and downs but they've also been able to come through when it's been least expected they know the terrain they know what it's they know what lies at stake and they know that they're not going to leave anything on the table to chance now who was in charge of south carolina state troops how about a lieutenant colonel william henderson he fought in multiple engagements with militia units. He served in the South Carolina State Provisional Congress starting in 1776. He even commanded the 6th South Carolina Regiment prior to Charleston's fall, May 1780, where he eventually was captured and sent to prison. Yeah, that uh, fall of Charleston was not a pleasant um, period. As a matter of fact, it began the start of some um, unsettling um, misfortunes, or what I call setbacks, for the Continental Army um, at the start of the Southern Campaign. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel William Henderson is was a cousin to uh, Colonel James Williams, whom sadly died at Kings Mountain, October 1780. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel William Henderson was a native of South Carolina's Spartan District. Of course, when I think of Spartan District, how about Spartansburg, South Carolina, not far from Greenville in the upper country? Not too far from, say, Charlotte, North Carolina, for those of you who are wondering exactly where Spartanburg is. Another uh, fellow South Carolinian who is worth mentioning, his name is Lieutenant Colonel Peter Ory. Now, his last name is actually spelled H-O-R-R-Y, and to us that would, that would be uh, pronounced as Hory. But, believe it or not, it is spelled Ori. He, he is a commander under uh, Lieutenant Colonel William Henderson. He is a native of South Carolina's Low Country. He served as a captain in the 2nd South Carolina Regiment prior to Charleston's fall of May 1780. Becomes 1781, he fought in the militia under Francis Marion as a colonel. 
There is a county in South Carolina called Horry County. It is named in honor of the Horry family, whom were a prominent family that lived in the uh, state's low country. And for those of you who are wondering where Horry County is located, it is located right, it's located not far from Myrtle Beach. So whenever you think of Myrtle Beach, you can also think of Horry County. Another uh, South Carolinian who's worth mentioning, uh, his name is Brigadier General Andrew Pickens. And there is a place in South Carolina in the northwest part of the state, not too far from Greenville, Union, Spartanburg, uh, a place called Pickens, South Carolina, named after Brigadier General Andrew Pickens. Andrew Pickens uh, is an interesting story here. Um, after the um, debacle at Charleston, or that is the uh, siege, sur the siege surrender that uh, resulted in almost uh, in just over five thousand troops being uh, forced to surrender, there were plenty of um, non-continental um, soldiers who participated in the uh, siege campaign of Charleston. Now, given that the surrender of Charleston has taken place, those soldiers whom were not a part of the Continental Army were uh, given two choices. They either um, take up a parole, that is, you do not um, fight throughout the duration of the conflict. If you choose not to take up parole, then you, you know, become a prisoner of war. So for uh, Brigadier General Andrew Pickens, he uh, chooses uh, parole. However, that um, all changes when um, Sir Henry Clinton uh, decides before uh, leaving South Carolina to go back up to New York, he decides to revoke everyone's parole. In other words, he, he pretty much says, okay, I think it's just best to uh, take away the neutrality thing and everybody now will be forced to take up arms with the mother country. You won't, you're not going to know, you will no longer be neutral. This, this to Pickens, this to Gen Brigadier General Andrew Pickens, along with other South Carolinians whom were impacted by the siege of Charleston via the Patriot side, felt that this was a violation of uh, proper consent, or they saw it as improper consent, meaning that they had not been told ahead of time of what was going to change. So Andrew Pickens decides to return to fight to the fight against uh, British, most notably after the Redcoats had raided his home. The destruction of Pickens's home, viewed upon Pickens himself, he saw it as a direct parole violation, and so um, he was promoted to Brigadier General of the South Carolina Militia after the victory of uh, at uh, Calpens. He um, married into the Calhoun family. Why is the Calhoun family uh, important? Well, Andrew's wife was a Calhoun. Um, Andrew and his wife became uncle and aunt to a famous South Carolina statesman, politician, otherwise known as John C. Calhoun. There you have it, folks. Um, it, it's it's uh, very fascinating, to say the least, when these family when families marry into one another. They ne you never know whom they're connected to or whom they will be connected to uh, down the road from within the from within the family. Did the use of cavalry serve as an asset in the Revolutionary War Southern Campaign? Uh, yes, considering those whom were excellent in this field had previous experience from the Northern and Middle Colony campaigns. 
Uh, cavalry leaders at Utah Springs ranged from Lieutenant Colonel Light Horse Harry Lee, or Light Horse Henry Lee, rather, I should say, whom would become the uh, father of Civil War Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Then you had Lieutenant Colonel William Washington, a cousin of George Washington, Major Joseph Eggleston to Captain Nathaniel Pendleton. All of these men were seasoned veterans in terms of uh, cavalry veterans of the Revolutionary War. They had hardcore fighting experience going into the upcoming battle on September the 8th of 1781, being that of Utah Springs. Well, I must say we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast uh, topic, or rather I should say segment. I think segment sounds far more appropriate. We have covered a lot of ground in this segment. When I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn more about the British. In other words, we're going to learn more about the British besides Lieutenant Colonel um, Alexander uh, Leslie. I believe that's who it is. I would hate to get that wrong, but... Uh, but we will uh, be uh, learning about the British commanders and um, Alexander Stewart, pardon me, not Leslie. I apologize. We will, we will be learning more about the British besides Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart. Uh, we will learn about other British troops, or not pr troops, but British um, officers whom will serve in this upcoming battle. We might learn about some other uh other things, if uh, time permits, but I will assure you that when I'm on the air next, we will learn about the uh, British um, commanders whom will be um, visible in this upcoming um, battle that it, for a long time obviously had been uh, forgotten and overshadowed by Yorktown. But fortunately, uh, within the last 25 years, this uh, forgotten battle has come to a greater um, light to where we, to where historians, leading up to the publication of uh, Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign, had been able to uncover um, major findings uh, that uh, that have shed all kinds of light, given that uh, the battle site or the battlefield site is uh, under the National Register of Historic Places. Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air with you guys. And thank you for being ardent listeners. Without you all, I'm not sure where I would be, but you all make this happen. So um, thank you again, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. <laughs>